Greetings and welcome to Canada, a yearly journey. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to talk about dogs. Dogs have been an important part of Canadian history from the very beginning. The first dogs to arrive in Canada came from Siberia over 12,000 years ago. They were used for hunting, pulling sleds, and as companions for the indigenous people who made their way across the Bering Strait. In the 17th century, European settlers brought dogs with them as well. And like the indigenous people, they relied on their dogs for companionship, hunting, and protection. Dogs have been some of Canada's most beloved heroes. In 1909, a Labrador retriever named Polar Bear helped the explorer Robert Perry reach the North Pole. In 1916, Canadians were captivated by the story of Bruno, a sheepdog who was rescued from war-torn Europe and refused to eat after his person passed away. In 1941, a Newfoundland named Gander saved the lives of several Canadian soldiers during the Battle of Hong Kong. Over the centuries, dogs have served Canadians in an ever-expanding variety of ways. Today, they work in law enforcement, detect cancer and COVID, help find missing children, and enable the blind to get around. But for most Canadians, dogs are much more than just working animals. Their loyalty, friendship, and unconditional love have made them part of our families, Countless dogs are beloved characters in Canadian art and film. Their stories have been told by such noteworthy authors as Farley Mowat, Lucy Maud Montgomery, and Stephen Leacock. They can make us laugh, they comfort us, they remind us of our better angels, of what our character could be. And perhaps that is why we love them so much. Which brings me to my puppy, Boris. Boris is a 10-year-old... Irish Setter, Newfoundland Cross, the same breed as Gander, actually. Recently, he began hacking up his food. His bark became raspy, and he's having trouble breathing deeply, so I took him to see the vet. Boris has the canine version of Lou Gehrig's disease. His spinal cord will slowly degenerate, and over the next one to three years, he will progressively lose control of the muscles he uses to play, bark, eat, and breathe. There is no cure, and the cause remains unknown. But there is a way to slow it down. With the laryngeal paralysis, Boris needs surgery. Without it, his constricted larynx will get worse faster, and he may pass away in only a few months. The problem is the surgery costs $5,000, which is well beyond what I can afford. So I'm asking for your help. I've set up a GoFundMe to pay for the vet. If you'd like to contribute, just click the link for Boris Fundraiser in my show notes. And if you've donated already, thank you. If you've shared, thank you as well. Thank you for helping us get a few more precious years together, because it means the world to us both. And I want to say a very special thank you to Andrew. What I just read was written by him. He's a fantastic copywriter, and he was able to do this for me so that I could get the word out on my dog. So if you want to visit his website, go to sublimelime.ca, and that's two limes, that's sublimelime.ca. I would like to say welcome to the newest patron of the podcast, Martin Streich. Today we're looking at 1872. We've had a couple of big years with 1869 and 1870 and 1871, and now things will slow down just a little bit, but it's still a very important year. In January 1872, John Young left his post as Governor-General due to poor health. With no Governor-General in place, there was talk of Sir John A. Macdonald, currently serving as the Prime Minister of Canada, 
taking over as Governor General. The Montreal Star reported, quote, Lord Lisgar will immediately leave Canada and that Sir Johnny Macdonald will be made Privy Councillor and a Baronet and receive the appointment of Governor General of Canada, end quote. Instead, he would be replaced by Lord Dufferin. On June 25, 1872, Lord Dufferin would be appointed as the Governor General of Canada, beginning a six-year career that would see many changes come to the country. The move could not come soon enough for Dufferin either, who was in danger of financial ruin due to his high spending and large debts. Lord and Lady Dufferin arrived on the Queen Victoria, and thousands of people came to see them arrive. The Ottawa Daily Citizen would write, quote, The mayor, looking exceedingly gorgeous in all the glory of the new toga and chain, awaited, with the respectability of the city at his back, the arrival of the noblemen, who henceforth, for a while, to represent the greatest of earthly sovereigns on the continent of America, end quote. The newspaper then described Lord Dufferin as he stepped off the boat, stating, quote, He is about 5 feet 8 inches in height, sparely built, and does not weigh apparently more than 140 pounds. His face is expressive of power and thought, and there is an air of quiet determination about him that inclines an observer to conclude he is a man who can decide and act for himself, end quote. After several speeches, Lord and Lady Dufferin then made their way to Rideau Hall, and the citizen would write, quote, Lord Dufferin, standing up in the carriage to which he was escorted, bowed several times in acknowledgement, but made no verbal reply, and the party drove onwards towards Rideau Hall, amidst an intense display of enthusiasm, loyalty, and welcome on the part of the multitude. End quote. On March 14th, Henry Joseph Clark became the third Premier of Manitoba. He would only serve until 1874, during which time he defended Lord Gordon Gordon, a con man who pretended to be a Scottish lord and made a fortune in investment fraud. The revelation of who he actually was caused a great deal of public embarrassment for Clark. Clark would only serve in the Manitoba legislature from 1870 to 1874 when he was defeated, half of which time he was Premier. On March 25th, the Toronto printers began to strike, looking to get a nine-hour workday. The printers were hoping to gain a shorter workday, and they soon gathered many supporters. The Ottawa Daily Citizen reported, quote, The printers have struck in all the offices in the city except the leader. The movement takes no one by surprise, as it has been contemplated for some time, end quote. On April 15th, they held a rally in which 10,000 supporters showed up, George Brown of the Globe, the head of the Masters Printers Association, had the police arrest the entire 24-man strike committee. Three days later, Sir John MacDonald, who was not a fan of George Brown, introduced a bill to legalize trade unions, which would become law and allow labor unions on June 14th. When that became law, the Criminal Law Amendment Act was also changed, which made picketing illegal. On March 31st, the first issue of the Toronto Mail is published. Over time, this newspaper will become the Globe and Mail, one of the most important newspapers in Canada. On June 20th, Phoebe Campbell would be hanged for the murder of her husband from the previous year. I related this in the last episode, so check it out, but she stated other men had broken into her home and killed her husband with an axe, but the evidence seemed to point to her instead. On June 22nd, the Grand Trunk Railway running from Toronto to Montreal derailed near Shannonville, Ontario, killing about 34 people. The flange of the driving wheel of the engine had broke, throwing the engine and tender off the track and running 200 yards on the ground, pulling the train with it. Upon crashing, cars smashed into each other, killing the occupants. 
and the steam car also ruptured, sending boiling hot water and steam into the second-class car. The Montreal Star relates, quote, One who is at the scene of the disaster describes the groans and screams as terrific, men, women, and children being drawn out of the debris, either dead or dying, end quote. On July 5th, George Luther Hathaway, the third premier of New Brunswick, would pass away. He had been seriously injured on June 25th when he suffered an injury to his hand after jumping from a moving train. He would die due to blood poisoning from the incident. On July 20th, the 1872 federal election is held. The Liberal Party was still not led by an official leader, but Edward Blake took on the role as unofficial leader, while Sir Johnny Macdonald continued to lead the Conservatives. By this point, the dual mandates had been abolished, which meant that a person could not serve in the House of Commons and a legislature at the same time, which pushed Blake to focus on the House of Commons. At the time, British Columbia had six seats in the House of Commons, while Manitoba had four. The size of the House of Commons had also increased from the previous election, from 162 seats to 200. Over the previous five years, the fortunes of the Conservative Party had changed as well. The country was dealing with an economic recession, and the country feeling divided over the promised railway to connect British Columbia to the rest of the country. And while the previous election had run for six weeks, the 1872 election would run for three months, from July 20th, 1872 to October 12th, 1872. Even though the House of Commons had increased its seat count, the Conservatives still only finished with 100 seats in the House of Commons, while the Liberals picked up 33, coming within six seats of defeating the Conservatives to lead the country. The new provinces were mostly split in votes. The Conservatives picked up four seats in BC, while the Liberals had two. In Manitoba, the Conservatives had two seats, while the Liberals had one, along with one independent. The real gain for the Liberals was in Ontario, where future Prime Minister Alexander Mackenzie campaigned heavily for the party. In that province, the party had 48 seats to 38 won by the Conservatives. In Quebec, the Conservatives made up their ground with 37 seats to the Liberals' 27. At the time, there was still no ballot, and simply a proclamation of who one would vote for. Those who opposed having a ballot included an unnamed MP who stated, quote, a workman, for example, having promised his employer to vote one way, would vote another, end quote. Imagine. New Brunswick was the only province to have ballots, which it adopted in 1855 after several riots that led to deaths during the elections. With the Conservatives at 100 seats and the Liberals just behind them, this created Canada's first minority government. Macdonald was forced to work with the Independents in order to have a functioning majority over the Liberals. Of course, the real story of this election would come after, and it would lead to one of the biggest scandals in Canadian history, the Pacific Scandal. I'll talk more about this in the next episode. In the summer of 1872, MacDonald asked Sir Hugh Allen to put a company together to build the railway, and he was promised the presidency of that company. Allen, possibly without the knowledge of MacDonald, was also guaranteed the charter and the majority of stock in return for additional election funding amounting to $350,000. On April 2nd, 1873, that scandal broke in the House of Commons and there were calls for a committee of inquiry and charging that Allen's company had been financed with American money and that Allen had given large sums of money to senior members of the government in the election. On July 18th, telegrams published and liberal newspapers showed that MacDonald and others had accepted that money. While MacDonald maintained that his hands were clean, stating he had not profited personally, 
His government would be forced to resign on November 5, 1873, and the Conservatives would lose in the January 22, 1874 election. MacDonald, of course, remained as leader, but his party lost 35 seats in that election. MacDonald would state that due to his heavy drinking in 1872, he did not remember periods of time during the election or negotiations with Allen. And after losing his role as Prime Minister, MacDonald began to drink much less. Again, I will talk more about the Pacific Scandal in the next episode. On September 1st, John Kent, who served as the Premier of Newfoundland from 1858 to 1861, would pass away in St. John's at the age of 67. On October 2nd, the Halifax Morning Chronicle ran an ad looking for recruits for a new police force that would become the Northwest Mounted Police. It stated, quote, Active, healthy young men for service in the Mounted Police Force in the Northwest Territory. They must be of good character, single between the ages of 20 and 36, capable of riding. They will have to serve a term of three years. Their pay will be 75 cents per dime and everything, uniforms, rations, board, etc. found and on completion of services will receive a free grant of 160 acres of land with right of choice." End quote. On October 10, 1872, the San Juan Island was awarded to the United States, which would settle the Pig War that had begun in 1859 and continued with no real resolution or conflict for a decade and a half. This established the border between the United States and British Columbia in the Harrow Strait. In the decision, it was stated, quote, most in accordance with the true interpretations of the treaty concluded on the 15th of June 1846 between the governments of Her Britannic Majesty and the United States of America is the claim of the government of the United States that the boundary line between the territories of Her Britannia Majesty and the United States of America should be drawn through the Harrow Channel, end quote. And on November 25, 1872, the British withdrew from the island. On October 31st, Oliver Mowat would become the Premier of Ontario, replacing Edward Blake. Remember him? I just talked about him. Mowat would go on to serve as the Premier for the next 24 years, and would then become the Lieutenant Governor of the province from 1897 to 1903. His time as Premier is longer than anyone else in the province's history. He would also be part of the last Liberal dynasty in Ontario's political history, as the Conservatives would dominate provincial politics throughout the 20th century. On November 10th, Frederick Alderdice was born in Belfast, Ireland. He would be the 10th and last Prime Minister of Newfoundland, serving in 1928 and from 1932 to 1934. His government was unable to deal with the growing economic crisis in Newfoundland, and the Dominion would have a partial default on its debts. Aid was provided by Canada and Britain in exchange for a royal commission that would determine the fate of the Dominion. The commission recommended a suspension of responsible government and that a commission of government be appointed. Alderdice accepted this amid British pressure. He would pass away two years later in 1936. On November 21st, the Victoria Memorial was completed and unveiled by Lord Dufferin. The memorial, which is a sculpture of Queen Victoria, is located in Montreal and was built through donations from regular residents. Now, of course, it wasn't called the memorial back then because she was still very much alive. On November 30th, John McCrae would be born in Guelph, Ontario. He would write in Flanders Field in 1915, which has become a part of our heritage and an iconic poem related to the First World War. His poem has become a part of Remembrance Day celebration throughout Canada, but he would unfortunately die from pneumonia three weeks after the end of the war. Cigarette, sir. 
Major John McCrae, surgeon, born and raised in Guelph, Ontario. Poppies. Now, blow. Between the crosses, row on the road. If you break faith, McRae? In Flanders, fields. What is it? I'm not sure. John McRae of Montreal died in the war, but his poem is still spoken aloud when men, women, and children gather to remember. We'll start to see a lot more people from the First World War being born around this time and continuing for several more episodes. On December 23rd, Amor de Cosmos would become the second Premier of British Columbia. He would serve for the next two years. Cosmos, born William Alexander Smith, had his name changed in 1854 to be Love of Cosmos in Spanish. He said it was, quote, To what I love most, love of order, beauty, the world, the universe, end quote. In 1858, he arrived in Victoria in the colony of British Columbia and had served in the legislature since British Columbia joined Confederation in 1871. As Premier, he would focus on economic expansion, the development of schools, the growth of the steel industry, and political reform. He would eventually be declared insane in 1895, and he would attempt to create a hot food delivery service company to prospectors in the Klondike. He would pass away on July 4, 1897. Many important initiatives and events would happen this year as well. On November 30th, 1872, the Winnipeg Free Press was published for the first time, and it's still published. It's currently the oldest newspaper in Western Canada. An unfortunate law would be put through the British Columbia Legislature this year, banning all Asian and First Nation people from being able to vote in any election in the province. That would continue for decades. George King would become the Premier of New Brunswick for the second time, making him both the second and fourth Premier of the province, and he would serve until 1878. Elijah McCoy would invent the first of several devices for oil engines that would be used in trains and factories. Related to that, in a roundabout way, is the new Patent Act that was introduced this year that encouraged the importing and licensing of technology and foreign patents by allowing the legal use of a patent in Canada if it was not registered within two years. It was also this year that negotiations for Treaty 3 would begin, although the process would take much longer than Treaty 1 and 2, which only took a few weeks. Things would be different this time as the federal government put down limitations on the money that the commissioners negotiating the treaty could offer to the Saltu people in exchange for land. Whereas the previous treaties had provided $15 per family of five, this treaty would limit that to $12 per family. The negotiators for the government on this treaty would be Weymouth Simpson, Simon Dawson, who is an engineer in overseeing the road waterway system project that would cut through the Saltu land, and Hudson Bay Company representative Robert Pither. Treaty negotiations began in 1871 with the Saltu, but the Saltu made it clear they were not interested in the deal of ceding land, but instead wanted payments for the right of way through their territory. Treaty negotiations quickly fell apart, but both parties agreed to meet again in June of 1872. When that meeting came around, the commissioners were again unsuccessful in securing a deal. The Saltu wanted an increase in annual payments due to the fact that gold and silver were found on their land, 
greatly increasing its value. Simpson came to believe that the Saltu on the American side of the border were influencing their Canadian counterparts. After the negotiations fell apart, the federal government told Simpson to try again in the fall. They also stated they would offer chiefs an annual salary of $25 and band leaders $15. When October 1872 came around, the two sides once again met, but this time only a few of the Saltu showed up. Most had gone home for hunting, and the decision was made to try once again in the summer of 1873. And we'll talk about that one in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1872. If you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week, we're of course looking at 1873. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Prignitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobbs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Biography, Canadian Encyclopedia, Canadian Labour Congress, Wikipedia, Ottawa Daily Citizen, and the Montreal Star. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.